Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.05 a.m. at GoSBLive.com or visit us in person. You can find directions at GoStonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at Facebook.com slash GoStonebridge and our Instagram at SBChurch. All right, so we are starting. I'd never heard that before, so it was good. They're, they're pulling all sorts of clips together. And uh, we're going to start this series talking uh, about why truth matters. And this series will lead up to Easter because if, if you know the story of Easter and if you've read in the Gospels, especially, you know, how they record uh, Jesus last week and as he goes up there, truth becomes an issue because it always does whenever things are really, really serious. I mean, because you want to know, so have I, have I built my life on something that matters, something that counts? You know, is there... Is there truth there? And I know you're, you're probably gonna think, yeah, 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 but you know, it just gets all so muddled and all so, so I think you're absolutely right, it does. Because everybody wants to grasp or sort of claim that they know the truth and that they live by the truth and, and uh, because it does something for them. It, it means you can't question then what I do, how I live, or which direction you know I go in life. I'll also say this, there is a danger to it. And uh, I remember discussing uh, this uh, years and years and years ago, because whenever you do that, there's a tendency for you to think, I know the truth and no one else does. So therefore my way is right. That builds a sense of arrogance sometimes. It takes away um, sometimes the opportunity then to listen and uh, to learn and to grow, and if you can't have your truth challenged, then you have to ask the question, okay, so how true is it really? And uh, sometimes it, it brings about a judgmentalism, you know, in life. I have, I have friends, and uh, they became believers, as I did, and one of the things that happens is when you become a believer and you, and you read the scripture and you realize what's in there is you kind of fall in love with it. You really do because the words and the stories change who you are and they change your perception. And there's a tendency, I have a good friend that would say, you know, I have a tendency when I, after that to become kind of a legalist. Of course, because you find some things that really are true and really are powerful and really matter. And, and hum, humanity is just who we are, tends to be like, I know the truth and I need to straighten everybody else out or tell them the way it is. But here's the thing that you can hold on to. If it's true, guess what? It's true, <laughs> that, you know. So the truth will stand itself and it will stand on its own. And I, that's why I tell people, I don't think any place in the Bible it says, you and I have to defend the Bible and prove that it's true. I think the opposite is the way it works. That the Bible, if we believe it and we try to stand on it, and we try to say, I wanna learn from what God has has taught me, that ends up defending us, right? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that Paul used the example of wearing armor. And uh, he said, so, you know, th there's a belt that a, or a girdle or a, or a sort of a harness that a soldier would put on to hold all the pieces together. And he said, so put on that belt or that harness of, what was it called? Yes, of course. Because that will hold it all together, the fact that it is true and, uh, and that's, that's part of the struggle. And so can I build my life you know, on truth? And then which truth? Because a lot of people have different versions of the truth. And that's why I, I, I decided to call this, and I thought I'd mess with you a little bit. So where do we get this stuff from? Where does, you know, when someone comes up with it, where do they get it from? And there, there are a number of different places that people get it from. Um, one of the biggest is, does it work for me in my life, right? And someone will say, well, this is my what? And that's what they're trying to say. This is what works for me in my life. But now here's the question. Will it always work though? Because, you know, I've got uh, um, some um, little ones at the house. Some grandkids are there right now. They, they're here for the weekend. And their truth, right, as a, as a three-year-old, a three-year-old's truth is not the same truth as a 33-year-old, you know, their, their parents. It's, it's not, and it's one of the phrases that uh, my, the, the three-year-old has learned, and, uh, which is a really good phrase, and, and, and her mom has had to teach her this, and uh, so she, it came up, I'd never heard it until this, uh, till last night, 
it's at the end of the day and it was, it was time to go take a bath and, and um, you know, go to bed. And uh, of course, is a three-year-old going to say, oh, of course, yes, I will, uh, no. So, so, uh, so her mom says, if mom says it's time, and then she'll she will respond, it's time. You know, so I thought, oh, that was great. I mean, that worked. Because she realizes, okay, mom is setting the time and mom has decided because mom's truth or mom's timing is actually better than the three-year-old's timing. It is, so just to let you know, it is, of course, and uh, because it works better and it has a, a more of a long-term positive uh, effect and productive effect. And so I decided I would try to use this, right? So they call me Papa, just to let you know. So that's Grandpa. I said, and if, if Papa says it's time, and they just look at me. <laughs> okay, so it doesn't matter if Papa says it's time. No, because I'm not doing that. That's, you know. But if Mama says it's time, and it's time. And I love it when they respond that way. So you and I, you know, we go through some of the same struggles. We're going through the same things. And I want to take you to a story. We started the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Um, I, I, the reason I bring this up is because this is the way the Bible works with us and communicates. This is how God communicates to us. He, he tells us truths. He tells us things that we need to know, foundational things. But then it, it comes across to us most in the stories of the Bible, of people trying to live it out and trying to walk it out. And that, that's the hard part, isn't it? That's the part that you and I... If we listen to someone's story, we watch it, we see it, we say, okay, that's what that means. And that's, you know, big, big deal. So I'm going to go to, I want to jump back into Joseph's story that I started um, last week. But before I do that, I want to go to the very beginning of the Bible. I know you think, okay, we're going to start from the beginning. And we're just going to read, you know, from Genesis 1 all the way to chapter 41. So you can get the whole, no, we're not doing that. Okay. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 1, Gen the, book, the Bible starts with this different phrase or this, this different, different statement than any of the other uh, religious books, creation stories, everything that came before it. And um, yes, as someone wrote me, but don't we believe, don't we pretty much know that Moses wrote Genesis? Yes, that's, that's what everyone believes that's what everyone sees Moses had the education so Moses comes you know what in the story of Joseph Moses doesn't come for another 400 years after that so yes that that's what we believe so Moses is writing it down it is what the Bible would call revelation this has been revealed to him or it has been passed down to him however he 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 got this this is the revelation that has come from God but it, it's such an incredibly different approach to every other philosophy, religion, idea at the time. It, 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 it does not relate in any way, shape, or form to anything that came uh, before it. And there's a reason for it. Because Moses, as he reiterates this story, as he writes this down, he's trying to establish something for his people, for the pe people of Israel. The good thing is we still have it 4,000 years later to establish our lives on also. And it, is, it has been one of those things that has been used over and over and over and over again historically and has proven itself in, in the practical way of people's lives to be worth building your life upon, what, what is there. And, and, and I know you say, well, I know people, of course. And are there, you know, Christian movements? Of course, you know, that don't go... But it has proven itself over and over and over and over. And if you're like me, you're going to watch, you're going to look, and you're going to say, so what am I going to build my life upon? What, what truths should I, should I grasp and should I hold on to and say, that should be foundational for me? And where did this stuff come from? Because that, if, if, you, if you don't know where it came from, then it takes away so much of the power of it or or why it works. So Moses is laying this down, and he lays it down with this, with this statement. I think it'll appear on the screen, right? Is that what pops up first? Hopefully, yeah, there's Genesis 1-1. Say this with me. Can you see that? Wave if you can see that. Okay, I just want to make sure y'all can see. Is it appear up there? No, okay, just over here. Okay, so read this with me. This is how he starts. This is the very first sentence. Um, 
in Genesis, the very first sentence of the Bible, Old Testament, this is Moses, though, at the time, who, who's writing this. Uh, he, the Pentateuch, he, put, he puts down the first five books. It says this, what? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Right. I want you to hang on to this one phrase. In the beginning, God created. God created. Because it changes everything. All the other stories before were the gods being created and how the, the gods were created. That's not the foundation for everything in the Bible and what Moses lays down. He's saying there was God before creation. There was God before anything was created. That, that's an entirely, entirely different approach with profound implications upon our lives. Think about it. If God was before all of creation, then all of creation is something that he thought of, that he dreamed of, that he put into place, and he put it into place for a reason and had somewhere that he wanted it to go. Now think about it. If that's how you see life, if you understood life that way, how would you live life? Different than if you didn't see it that way. Very different if you, than if you thought God or one of the gods, as, as they did, you know, the Egyptian gods, you know, in, in Joseph's time, if you thought of them as being created and they were creations, you know, you would see life very different than if you thought there was a God who was above all of that, beyond all that, and he actually started it and he, he created it himself. I don't know if you uh, follow um, how much science and things like that that you follow, but it, it, it actually was just in the last century that there was a huge shift in modern scientific thinking about creation and the universe and what we did. I, I know that you say, well, no, I think the, the idea of the Big Bang has been around a lot longer. And a lot of times, you know, the Big Bang was looked at as something kind of anti-Bible, but actually what happens is the Big Bang ends up coming something that sort of says the same thing that the Bible says, and it kind of works toward the same thing. And so because of it, there's a lot of pushback now from those who do not want a biblical view to say, now wait a minute, I'm not so sure about the Big Bang. But the problem is the scientific theory that comes from all our observations has, has brought such strength to this idea that there was a what? A beginning, yes. That, that's, what, that's what Moses is saying. He didn't know anything about the Big Bang. He just knew there was a beginning. And there was a beginner who designed it and who planned it. In fact, I, I, don't, I don't know if this has anything to, to do with it, but even in the very beginning when he says it, kind of sounds like the Big Bang, right? After he says, and God created the heaven, he says, and God said, let there be, remember what his first one was? Let there be what? light and there was light is that the you know i don't know but that's how he he describes it that's how that's how he says it he he began it he created it he separated things he took the things and made them into something with with purpose and and planning and and it began and about last century with the hubble telescope going out and watching things everything changed before that the the most um, current and the most powerful scientific ideas, including it affected the church, saw it this way too, was that the universe was static. It's just out there, you know, because, you know, you go and you see the stars and there are a few things that move over a long period of time, but for the most part, if you want to navigate your, your way through life, say you're on a ship somewhere, you, you watch the stars because they are dependable. They're always there. It's always in the same place. And so it appears that the universe and the stars and whatever's out there is just sort of static. It's just sort of sitting there. And it came with it some of the idea that it, the universe has always been, even though that's not what he says, but, but that idea kind of carries forth. And then when the Hubble telescope and some of the things we learn, including the, what is called the red shift theory or idea, they, they sort of realized that it reinforced the idea that there was a place and a moment in time when it began, and this was what was so crazy that came out with the Hubble telescope. They realize it's not static, that the universe is expanding. 
And the universe is expanding at an increasing rate. In other words, as things fly away from the initial boom or whatever happened, they are flying away faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And it doesn't seem there's any end to how fast they're gonna continue to fly away. Does that blow your mind? It does mine. I look up in the sky and um, you know, at night, and I, I love to observe. I used to, with my kids, you know, when they were small, I would make them sit in the hot tub with me in the winter, especially in the winter. And we'd just stare up at the sky and we would just look and we would talk and we would talk about God and we'd talk about life. And you just look at it and it just, it's, it's so crazy to think all of that is going in a direction faster and faster at speeds we don't even understand or can't calculate. And yet it is so far away and, and, and so magnificent that it looks like it doesn't move, but it does. And that's the universe that God created. I know you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't see how that could be. So in, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way uh, galaxy, a friend of mine who recently passed away, we were talking, I said, you know, remember there are like, you know, tens of thousands of solar systems or stars just in our galaxy. And who knows how many millions of galaxies there are. We really don't know. And he said, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. He corrected me. And I said, you're right. And then, you know, that blows my mind even more. Remember there, I don't know if you remember this, when I was a kid, there was a service and you could pay, I think it was like $39 and they would name a planet after you somewhere. Does anybody remember that? You get your own planet, you know, so, oh good, man, there's a planet named, because there's so many out there, you know, the possibilities that it's a whole lot more, I mean, enormously more than the number of people that there are, and you could have your own, you know, so the planet of Steve is out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I may have fallen for that trick, right? So, you know, and uh, I don't know if it works, I don't know if, if, you know, one day if somebody gets there, they'll have to call it that, but you know, that, that was the idea, they could sell you something. The, the idea that God could create and that God could decide things are and they are has, has enormous implications. In fact, one of the implications that, that uh, coincides with the work of Albert Einstein is that God even created what you and I would think of as time. And that's one of the things he worked on so much. He believed that time was not just in itself over everything, but it was a component of it and it had some sort of measurable qualities to it and some qualities that could be maneuvered. And in the Bible, that's actually the way time is described with God. He created it, he, he made it, and, and he is beyond it. So in the Bible, God can be in the past and in the future and in the present all at the same time because this is a thing that we call time that he made. Now, I know you're like me, you're thinking, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me either. But that's the description of who God is and the, and the power and the ability of God, the creator who is outside all of creation. This is something that he made, that he uh, oversees. You know what, uh, I, I was listening to, uh, or reading, guy, I've got a quote in here, uh, Dennis Prager, and he, he brought up this. I thought this was, this was pretty amazing. He said, because of that, God is not natural. I want you to think about that. God is not natural. Because to suggest that something is natural would mean that it is a part of nature. That's where the idea or the word comes from, the concept comes from. God is not natural. We describe God, or the Bible describes God as what? Supernatural, beyond what is natural or what is nature, because God is not a part of nature. All the other religions, the gods, everything was a part of nature. Nature was kind of bigger or ruled over. And uh, now here we are, you know, 4,000 years later, and we're like, yeah, we used to think that because we thought the planet was the only thing and our world's the only thing. Now we realize, no, not at all. And then we look back and, and God was described way, 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 way back then when no one had any kind of concept of anything like this as being beyond nature. That nature is something he created that he controls, that he can do anything he wants to with. In fact, this is what I, I really like about what uh, Dennis Prager talks about in his um, commentary on Genesis. He's a Jewish man, um, and so he's, he's, um, he's not a Christian, but he is a Jewish man with a strong uh, belief in the Bible, and so he wrote this rational Bible, is what he calls it. And in his commentary that just came out a couple months ago in Genesis, he, he says this. 
He says, because of who God is and because God created us, that means your life and my life has meaning. And without God, if there is no God, your life has no meaning. Your life's just a thing that happened and one day won't happen anymore. But if there was a creator, someone who started it, who has purpose and plans for what he does, which is what is described uh, in, that, in the first couple of chapters, then, then that means your life has a reason for existence. And your existence has meaning in the world. And, and, and it has purpose in the world. And I think that's one of those things, let's be honest, that we struggle with more than anything else. We want it. And yet sometimes people come up with ideas or philosophies because they don't want the implications of it that that say, no, there is no God. Okay, so what you just said is my life has no meaning. And, and, And as he says, no, human beings are incredibly good at saying, no, I'll make up my own meaning, right? In fact, here's a, a quote, it'll pop up on your screen, but it's in your outline. I thought you'd enjoy this quote. This is what it, Prager, uh, what he writes in his commentary. He says, first, the verse posits, that means it, it brings to light or it says this is a reality, a creator of the universe. That means, among many other things, there is meaning to existence. I want you to think about that. He's right. That means there is meaning to our existence. If there is no creator, there is no ultimate purpose to existence, including, of course, human existence. We humans can make up a meaning because we are the one species that cannot live without meaning, right? He says, but the fact remains, we made it up if we make up our own meaning. It has no sense of eternal or lasting or overall truth to it if, if we make up our own meaning. It's only in the little world that we have created that we could possibly make up our meaning. But I think he's right. I think as human beings, I think there's something in us that is so intrinsically attached to the fact that we were made differently and God made us like himself in so many ways that we are looking for the connection with God that we desperately need because without that connection, we lack meaning to our existence. We lack purpose to our existence. And I know you may be here and you say, well, that, so what is it? I have people all the time when I talk about this, they say, so tell me the meaning of I said, whoa, it's not my job to tell you. You know, you gotta go figure that out. It, it, it's your job to go seek out God, connect with God, listen for God, and let God teach you in, in his way of what the meaning of your life is and the purpose of your life and, and why you are here. But you have to find it. You cannot just go through life without it because you end up in a bad place when you do that. You lose the importance and the power of your life in just a short period of time in this world um, and on this earth. So let me take you, I want to jump then again uh, all the way to uh, Joseph's story. And uh, so we, we kind of set up Joseph's story saying that Joseph was the uh, you know, favored son of a guy named, who was his dad? Jacob, thank you. Uh, so Jacob was uh, Joseph's dad. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac, and Isaac was the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. So, so Joseph is this guy that ends up leading the people or taking the people from the, the land of Canaan. He actually takes them down into the land of Egypt, where again, like I said, they're going to be there for 400 years before this guy named Moses walks them out and uh, takes them back to the promised land. So this guy named Joseph, 17 years old, favorite son, a lot of wonderful things about Joseph's life, but the biggest thing is Joseph still has this connection, this idea that there is a God who watches after him and that that he has to be true to uh, as best he can because he is the guy who made us, created us, gave meaning to our lives. And and so Joseph kind of lives his life that way, even as a 17-year-old who makes plenty of mistakes. His brothers hate him. And if you remember the story, they sell him to slave traders who take him to Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph is sold to a man named Potiphar. Now, interesting, Potiphar is the captain of the guard for for Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of all, the ruler of all of Egypt. So a very select place. And it says, and the Lord is with him in that household. So as a 17-year-old, Joseph works hard, he learns, he has to deal with life as it really is. I think that's what we have to do also. But he has something and he's grasped something and and the one who created him is with him and he prospers in that situation. 
And he could have easily said, I don't like this. I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. You know, become bitter, angry, whatever. But somehow Joseph works through that, and Joseph continues to prosper. And everything's going real well until, you know, Potiphar's wife likes him. She takes a liking to him, as I said last week, because she realized he's from Texas. And uh, hey, we got, I got a bigger laugh last week. Okay, so, you know, the, uh, but, but, you know, she likes him. And so she says, you know, come lay with me. And he says, I can't do it. You know, how could I do this um, and, and do this to Potiphar after the way he has trusted me and he's put me in this, and, and he adds to it, and how could I do this to who? Do you remember? To who? Yes. Why would Joseph make a statement like that? Because it's how Joseph sees and understands his life in light of the creator of the universe, the one who gave him life and gives his life, listen, meaning and purpose. So even though he, he may be where he doesn't want to be, life has not gone how he planned it or what he thought was the best thing, Joseph still has this idea that, but God is the one who gives meaning and purpose, and he's hanging on to and he's And listen, at the same time, he's learning this too. Let's be honest. It's not just something that he is, you know, he's set, he can write a treaty on it, you know, and all that. You know, he, he is learning this in his life also, as you and I have to learn, have to come to grips with this also as we go through life. Otherwise, you know, it, it takes the, the fire out of us, it takes the steam out of us living our life and going through and, and learning from our life. So, so he does this and the cost of that is because Potiphar's wife is a powerful, powerful person in the land of Egypt. Um, Potiphar believes her, throws him in jail, but as we said last week, it's not just any jail. He gets thrown in Pharaoh's jail, and, and that's the, the Potiphar, the, the captain of the guard, he, he controls this jail. He's thrown in this jail. Why is he in this jail? Two other people who work for Pharaoh, um, the, the uh, baker um, and the uh, butler, I want to say the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, but you know, it was the, they, they do something, we don't know what it was, but they did something that offended Pharaoh. And it was a very, very, you know, risky place to work, but a wonderful place to work. And they wind up in the same jail. And in that jail, they have dreams. And they're disturbed by their dreams. And they, they encounter Joseph, who has been put in charge of them to watch after them, because he was always the one who rose up and was trusted by the way he saw life and the way he lived life. And Joseph interprets their dreams. Now, here's what I think is really interesting. One of the interpretations is really good. You're gonna, he's gonna call you back, you're gonna get out, you're gonna go back to your former position. One of the interpretations is really bad. Um, he's gonna be, continue his anger and at some point he's gonna call you up and you're gonna get called out and he's gonna impale you. <laughs> so not a really good like, thank you for that, what a wonderful thing, right? It's not what we wanna hear, is it? How many people would be honest? If you're, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. You can do the internal, raise your hand. How many of you honestly, you, you want to hear only good things? Anybody inside go, yeah, that's what I want to hear, good things. And our tendency is to say, I want to hear good things. And if the truth is not a good thing, I don't want to hear it. I, I still remember a uh, Everybody Loves Raymond's episode. You're, did you watch that? I had a friend that said, you need to watch this. And I remember I watched it first, I thought, I don't like this. They're always angry. And then I got to where, oh, I like this. And they're always angry. You know, so they, um, and he's talking to his kids and about bad things that they do. And he said, so just promise me one thing. When you do something that's really bad, just promise me you won't tell your mother or I ever. You just, so, you know, sometimes that's the way it is. We don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. I, 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 I just want to only see the good. I want to see the positive and, uh, you know, I, 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 of course, I understand that. I understand why we would be that way. But the truth is the truth, right? Both the good and the bad. And to ignore the truth is a mistake. <laughs> because God is the one who oversees it. God is the one who controls all of it. He's bigger than all of it. And, and can God work through both the good that you like in your life and the bad that you don't like in your life? Of course, if that's who he is, if that's how you built your truth, yes, of course he can. I mean, this is Paul in Romans, right? For we know that God causes all things, good and bad, 
to work together for the good for those who love him and are what? Called according to his what? Yeah, his purpose, his meaning, that, exactly. So when we look to God in that way, it gives us a strength or an ability to understand God is still control as Joseph is learning as he goes through life. And so I can trust that God is watching after me and he's leading my life. And none of this stuff is too big. None of this stuff, and I, I say that because, boy, that's the part that we need to hear, isn't it? It's the part that I need to hear because that's the part that discourages me or gets me to want to quit or just say, you know, everybody else's life seems so much better than my life. And why do they have, you know, this or that? And I don't, you know, if, if, you, if you don't, you just go in all kinds of bad directions and those bad directions will influence your understanding of God, your understanding of truth, and of course, then the way you're going to live and the way that you are going to react. So there's this one thing in this story that I forgot to point out. The guy that he said, um, you're going to get to be put back in that position, he said, only do this one thing for me, because he's like, thank you, you're so wonderful, thank you for telling me that. He says, when it happens, don't forget about me. Because he says, because I'm here because my brothers sold me, and I'm here because I was falsely accused. He says, don't worry, I won't forget about you. So the, he gets put back in that position, and what does he do? Anybody figure it out real quick? He forgets about him. Of course he does, because I'm happy. I got what I wanted. <laughs> so even though I made this promise, so, you know, well, and then a couple years later, uh, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh is really, really disturbed by his dream. And anytime rulers become really, really disturbed, everybody becomes disturbed because there's no telling what he might do in his disturbed state of mind and how it might affect everyone else. So here's where we pick up, you know, on that story. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 41. It says, Pharaoh, or the next morning, Pharaoh, say it with me. Pharaoh was what? He was very disturbed by the dreams. So he called all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. When Pharaoh told them his dream, no one could tell him what they meant. So these are the people that he counted on. These are the people who have insight. These are the philosophers of their day. These, these are the men who had the, the big ability to think and figure things out. And so he calls them together because here are my dreams. I need someone to help me figure these things out. What you're going to see in, in this, it's not that they didn't have opinions or ideas. Sometimes people think they, you know, will say they were just all silent. That's not true at all. They knew better than that, you know, because he would say, well, if you're just silent, why do I need you, right? Because he needed someone to help him with all this. It's just, as he goes through this, none of their understandings, none of their interpretations, none of what they said seemed to fit or to make sense or to satisfy uh, Pharaoh. In fact, look what it says in the next uh, paragraph. It says, finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. That's that guy that got rescued. He said, today I've been reminded of my, say this with me, my what? <sighs> I'm reminded because I need to bring something up that would really help you. It would probably help me to bring this up also. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to admit that I promised somebody way back. And I, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where he is. In verse 10, he says, some time ago, you were angry with the chief baker and me, and you Im imprisoned us in the palace of the guard, or the captain of the guard. That was, that's Potiphar. He says, one night, the chief baker and I each had a dream, and each dream had its own, say it with me, what? Yeah, they, 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 they knew this, this, meant, this meant something. Um, verse 12, there was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison, who was a slave of the captain of the guard. He was one of Potiphar's um, slaves. We told him our dreams, and he told us what each of our dreams meant. And everything happened, catch this, just as he what? In other words, truth. That's what they're saying. It, his, his interpretation of what he said was actually came true. I was restored to my position as cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed, and he was impaled uh, on, a, on a pole. So this just arouses Pharaoh's you know, desire and want to know more of what Joseph would, would, would know and what he would see. And so it says in the next verse, 14, it says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once. Now, 
remember, he is the Pharaoh. This is the Egyptian royalty and the court. So it says he was quickly brought from the prison after he shaved and he changed his clothes. It doesn't mean this. It means they shaved him. I mean, you know, if you're going to bring him in front, he has to be clean and in an appearance you know, that, that, that the Pharaoh would, would like and the, it would be acceptable. So he would look just like any uh, Egyptian person that was brought before the Pharaoh's uh, appearance. Changed his clothes, he went in and he stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night and no one here can tell me what it means. Meaning again. I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. And here's what Joseph replies. It is beyond my power to do this. Wow. And you talk about truth, right? And someone who, who understands it's not a threat for him to say, not me, but God. That's because he understands that that's, that's how much he grasped it, even though it would certainly have been in his favor to say, oh, yeah, I'm the guy, you know. Everybody counts on me. <laughs> you would want me on your team because I'm the man that knows it. That would certainly have been his, in his favor to update his resume in that way before the Pharaoh, don't you think? But he doesn't do it. He says, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. So Pharaoh, in verse 17, told Joseph his dream. In my dream, he said, I was standing on the bank of the Nile River. Nile River is really important to them. It's where life comes from. It's where the gods came from in their, in their thinking and their mindset was the Nile was the giver of life. And he saw, I saw seven fat, healthy cows coming up out of the river like they had come from Texas. And they began, okay, I, I keep sneaking it in, I'm sorry, and grazing in the marsh grass. I mean, there's some really fine looking cattle came up out of the Nile, kind of a, you know, a strange idea, supernatural idea, and they're grazing in the marsh grass. But then I saw seven sick-looking cows, scrawny and thin, came from Oklahoma or somewhere, and okay, come up after them. I, I have never, I've never seen such sorry-looking animals in all the land of Egypt. These, and, and that's kind of an added commentary. I mean, this is, this is how Pharaoh is expressing his disturbance and his struggle. He's saying, I've never seen anything so bad. These thin, scrawny cows ate the seven fat cows. They ate them. And then he adds this. He says, um, uh, but afterwards, you wouldn't have known it, for they were still thin and scrawny just like they were before. Nothing. It didn't even help them to eat the fat cows. He said, then I woke up. He said, then I fell asleep again. I had another dream. This time I saw seven heads of grain, full and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared and were blighted and shriveled and withered by the east wind and the shriveled heads swallowed the seven healthy heads i told these dreams to the magicians none of them could tell me what they mean and none of them could give me any satisfactory ideas or understanding of what my dream you know what i think i think in some ways they're probably afraid even if they did know what they meant right we want to tell them the good things but you know what we don't want to say? Anything bad or negative. Because you get him upset, and we know what happened to you know, two other guys already where they ended up for a couple of years, and one guy didn't make it out okay. So you know, this is someone to be feared, and I think there's a fear in them, a fear in them to speak the truth, to say the truth. I, I, I think we can all understand that. Because sometimes we know the truth, sometimes we know it would be important to say the truth, but there's a part of us that says, oh, Man. But if I speak the truth, we're thinking, we're projectors, what, what does that mean for me? What does that do for me? And it's easy just to say, I'm not going to say the truth. Remember, you go to, if you go into a court, you know, you have to put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the what? Truth, the, and nothing but the, and then they take their hand off and they don't do it. But that, you know, that's because it's hard. It is difficult because we weigh it out. We decide, how does that affect me? And I think they, are, they do the same thing. And so this is what will set Joseph apart. I'm not saying that Joseph's a guy, and everywhere he went, he'd, oh, okay. I mean, he's not, he's not a guy walking around, it's clear in the story, trying to judge everybody and everything, no more than Jesus did. 
There are a lot of things Jesus could have jumped on and he could put his finger at it. Because like I said, the problem is when you know the truth or you think you know the truth, there's a tendency to become arrogant and tendency to become judgmental. And, and you have to resist that part of it. Because even in John, um, the first chapter of John, which is uh, the beginning story for John, also he kind of goes a different way with it. But he talks about in the beginning and how Jesus was in the beginning. And he says he came and he lived among us. He was full of what? Grace and both. He was full of grace and truth. Not just truth. Jesus didn't walk around, you know, telling everybody, you know, but there was a, a, a purpose to why he came, a meaning to Jesus' life that, that absolutely incorporated the truth. But it didn't mean that he had to say everything all the time or act as if, you know, he knew everything, even though he did. <laughs> We don't, but, but he did because of who he was. So it says in verse uh, 25, Joseph responded. Here he goes. Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of. Don't you like this? Say it with me. What? Yes, that's what we like. That's what we want. Man, prosperity. We want, we want God to tell us everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be good. You know, God, can't you just make all the bad things go away? But that's, that's not the full picture here. He said the seven thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of what? Famine. And there's, there are two more paragraphs in here that have been in your outline. Um, I'm forced to squeeze an outline so I don't go too long. So there, but I'll tell you what they say. And he says, so, so Joseph actually goes on. He said, so listen, the seven years of famine are going to be so bad, Pharaoh. You won't even remember. No one in all of Egypt will remember the seven good years. Somebody will bring them up. They go, I don't even, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, have you ever been in something that bad? All memory of anything good goes away. You might be there today where you just feel like, oh, that's, you're talking about my life. You know, whatever good, I don't even remember it because it doesn't matter. It's past. And this is so real and so bad and not what I wanted that, you know, I, just, I can't think of anything but this. And that's what Joseph tells him. He's, he's being real straight with him. He said, that's how bad it's going to be. So here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. He gives him some advice. You need to find somebody that you can trust. This is a person smart, you know, they can work on things and they're disciplined. And they will take during the seven good years and they will take 20% of everything because there's gonna be so much, no one will even miss the 20% and take the 20% and you store it away in, in, in a grain houses and places. Just to let you know, I've seen documentaries uh, in the land of Egypt and at times they will be in places where uh, his, his uh, where Pharaoh's horses and his chariots were on the border because that's where the enemy would come. And they would actually walk into storage, the ruins, the foundation of storage areas, and they would say things like, this is weird because these storage areas for grain are enormous. I mean, this is enough grain to feed the entire you know, uh, uh, army, his, his, all of his horses for 30 years. I mean, it doesn't even make sense why would they have these enormous, gigantic storage areas? I'm not saying this is why, but hey, you know, maybe that was it. Maybe this is because uh, Joseph knew, he, put, he, he knows that this has to be done. You store up so that when the bad years come, when the bad things come, they don't overrun you. It's, it's okay. God has been faithful enough to say, hey, plan, prepare. Know that it's coming. And, and he, he leads them to do some good things, to be prepared. And so this is what uh, uh, Pharaoh thinks. He says, well, we need to find a guy like this. And this is one of my favorite parts of Pharaoh. He, he looks around at his guys, including the guys that couldn't tell him what was going on. And he basically says, I ain't got one of those. <laughs> there, there's not one here, you know. There's no one that I could trust in the seven good years that they would be so disciplined that they would put the grain away and they would do what they're supposed to do knowing the bad years are coming. And I, you know, I would pose it to you and with me. Are you that disciplined? <laughs> you believe and you trust God enough that if God puts you in a position and you know this is important because of what is coming, 
that, that I would do the right thing and I, I would do the thing that, that provides and, you know, would you do the right thing um, if it was so good that you didn't have to? Only later would you find out that I needed to? I don't know, man. It's pretty hard to do, right? Because when everything's going good, we just think it'll go good forever. It'll just get better and better and better. Nothing bad will ever come. But he's looking for somebody like this. And then uh, verse 37, this is two paragraphs later, he, adds, he finishes with this. He says, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, I like this, can we find anyone like this man, <laughs> Joseph, the, the Hebrew slave who's in prison because he attacked, supposedly attacked Potiphar's wife. Can we find anyone like this man? But this is how convinced of who he is. So obviously filled with, catch this, the spirit of God. He's not talking about what we understand as the Holy Spirit because Pharaoh would not have understood that, but he knew there was some spirit inside of, G, of Joseph living inside of him, motivating him, giving him extraordinary wisdom and courage and truth-telling. He says in verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed uh, the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on the throne will have a rank higher than yours wow so here's here's pharaoh's reasoning what i need is a man who's disciplined enough to do it who could be more disciplined than the guy who dared to tell me how bad it was when none of my guys would tell me how bad it's going to be and he would say you just need to find somebody disciplined enough to do the good thing the right thing during those times so that when the bad times come and they will come that you will be prepared for something like that. And so he's thinking, do I have anyone with that kind of courage, anyone with that kind of discipline that Joseph has shown for the past, he's 30 years old at this time, the past 13 years being a prisoner and, and being a slave, you know, that, that he has proven himself faithful even in the most difficult times. Can I find anyone quite like this man? I will put him in charge. Wow. So does truth matter in our lives? Does it matter where our truth comes from? Does it matter if we like the truth or not? Or maybe where it comes from is bigger and better than whether we like it or not and more trustworthy than whether we like it or not. There was a time, like I said, 400 years after this, a guy named Moses shows up. And at the very end of Moses' time, if you remember his, the 10 plagues as he's dealing with them, there's this, this one thing that happens. And I, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But um, here, here's what I want you to remember about the Hebrews at that time as they were in, in Egypt and about ready to leave. And, uh, and the 10th plague where the angel of death comes and they paint their doors with the blood of, of a lamb. The, they're still having to hang on and believe that in the midst of the most difficult times for them, in the midst of their, their persecution by the Egyptian people and the harshness of their life, that if they trust God and if they believe God, they're being, they're being trained also. That God is the one who is faithful. And that God is the one who brings meaning and purpose to their lives also. And so it's worth hanging on to that truth. So as Jesus meets with his disciples, Jesus is about to go through the most difficult part of his earthly life. And it will be the most difficult part for his disciples because it will, it will appear that Jesus has lost. And everything that we believed in, everything that we hold uh, as, as true has now somehow failed. And Jesus is doing this as he reminds them of the time in Egypt that they went through the same thing and yet God appeared faithful to them. So Jesus, during, the, uh, during this celebration of Passover, he takes the bread and he breaks it. He gives it new meaning because he wants them to understand that, yeah, this is of old, but this is actually foretelling who I would be and, and this time in your life also. He breaks the bread and he says, this is the bread that came out of heaven. This is not as your fathers ate and died. He said, he who eats this bread, totally different, this bread will live forever. 
And we know at the end of Passover, there's a cup that's passed after the meal. It's kind of a, one of the traditions of it. It has meaning to it, but Jesus changes the meaning. The meaning is his blood will give them a new relationship, a new life, a new reason to live, a new reason to believe and to trust God. Yes, absolutely. Wow. That God would be faithful even now. God will watch after us. He has his plans, and he is the one who gives our lives meaning and purpose. So John would later, in his old age, he would write one of my favorite verses. He says, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It means, John means we have fellowship with God, and that affects then our fellowship to one another. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son, it cleanses us from all our sins. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are the God of truth and you are the source of the truth that we need in our lives. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be living truth for us and that you've given us your word, the scripture itself, as a living word in our lives, continues to bring us to the God of life, the God who's been faithful, the God who plans way back, created it all, and will still be living and around and moving at the end of it all. If you're here and you've never put your hope and your trust in the God of creation, it is the God of creation who sent his son, he put on flesh and blood to come and live in this world like us, to, to go through all the same struggles that you go through, the same even mental struggles as he, as he was here on this earth. The difference was Jesus went through all those and he, and he did not fail, he did not sin. He remained faithful. It's something that we are not capable of doing, but instead he comes and he does it for us because of his love for us, the love the Father has for us. If you've never put your hope and your trust in him, what a great time to say, Lord Jesus, I wanna know you. I wanna know the, the God who created me. I wanna know the truth about life and I wanna learn as I go through life the meaning of my life and the purpose of my life. And I believe that you are the one who will do that for us. Jesus promises if we put our hope in him, he would give us the spirit of truth to live inside of us. And he would give us an insight into his word as a word of truth for us. In Jesus' name we pray.